interested in Imam Al Hussein when Abu Al Fadl Abbas went to the Imam Al Hussein changed the fate of humanity forever away from the ultimate martyrdom that he knew he was about. You say, look, you're following those people. For example, today we must welcome every human being. On the 27th of Rajab, 60 years after the migration of Rasulullah from the holy city of Mecca to Medina, and less than 50 years after the demise of the seal of messengers, Khatamul Anbiya, Rasulullah, on a dark and lonely night, Al Imam Abu Abdullah Al Hussein went towards the visitation of the grave of his grandfather Rasulullah, accompanied by some of his family members. Some men from Bani Hashim, they say that this indeed was an extremely special ziyarah of Imam al Hussein to the grave of his grandfather. The men of Bani Hashim narrate, they say Imam al Hussein repeatedly, many times, said his goodbyes to Rasulullah. It's as if it was going to be his last ziyarah. It's as if he was never going to return to the grave of his grandfather Rasulullah. It's as if it was truly his last goodbye. Zarahu ziyarat muwaddin la raja He sat in front of the grave of his grandfather and he wept. And he cried, saying his farewell. Then he stood and he made an important declaration, a very important statement to his men, to his family members. He informed them that he was going to embark on a special journey. He was going to take over an extremely important task and he has chosen the path of martyrdom and sacrifice fi sabilillah 1381 years later brothers and sisters we gather here this evening to commemorate imam al hussein and the martyrdom of imam al hussein millions upon millions of people around the world will wear black from this evening and they will gather in majalis to commemorate the aza of Imam al Hussein. However, what's extremely important for us to understand and to keep in mind is the vision of Imam al Hussein, the mission statement of Imam al Hussein. And Imam al Hussein has made that extremely easy for us. That same evening, 
When he left the city of Medina, he was encountered by his brother Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. Muhammad told him, Ya Abu Abdullah, our beloved, you are the reminder of Rasulullah amongst us. Please do not leave the city of Medina. There and then Imam al-Husayn made it clear to Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya and to millions of people around the world and within the course of history what his mission statement is going to be. He says, very brief, precise mission statement of Imam al-Husayn. He says, I do not embark on this journey for any other reason, for any other purpose besides to rejuvenate and to perfect the ummah of my grandfather Rasulullah and to take lead from the example of my grandfather and my father Amir al-Mu'mineen to enjoin the good and forbid the evil, to rejuvenate the Muslim ummah. This was the ultimate purpose of Hussein ibn Ali. This is why I always say that we must write the mission statement of Imam al-Husayn at the entrance of all of our majalis. From the very first night of Ashura, every time we enter a majlis and we leave from a majlis, we must remind ourselves with the mission statement of Imam Abu Abdullah al-Husayn. So we do not off track so we do not get involved in the cultural activities of the month of Muharram and we forget the bigger picture of why is it that Imam al-Husayn embarked on the special journey. Imam al-Husayn went to Mecca. He tried to rejuvenate the Muslim ummah while Hajj. He spoke to them, he gave sermons every single day. And listen to this. On the day that everyone was about to wear their ihram and begin the pilgrimage of Hajj, Imam al Hussein and his few companions and his family left the city of Mecca. Many people say Imam al Hussein felt unsafe. Imam al Hussein was not a coward. Imam al-Hussein was not running away from a battlefield. Imam al-Hussein was not going away from the ultimate martyrdom that he knew he was about to achieve. No. So why is it that Imam al-Hussein didn't wait to perform Hajj? He could have just waited for another three, four days. Isn't Hajj the most one of the most important acts of worship in the religion of Islam? Why is it that 
Al-Imam Al-Hussein leaves Hajj with his companions and his family. Imam Al-Hussein, brothers and sisters, realized Hajj has only become a ritual. It's a cultural practice. There is no spirit of Islam in that Hajj. If he speaks to those people, then they are dead. They're not being moved. Then what is the point of Hajj? What is the point of the acts of worship? Therefore, Imam Al-Hussein went on to a much more important journey than just performing a cultural Hajj. Imam Al-Hussein knew he had a much greater task than just being part of a crowd. Let's ask ourselves, are we just being part of a crowd? Are we here because it's a cultural activity? Imam Al-Hussein went on the journey of change. If we attend a single majlis of Imam Al-Hussein, a single sermon, and we don't feel the urge to change, to want to become better people. If we attend majalis years in, years out, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, but yet we do not become the ambassadors of Islam. We cannot defend the Holy Quran. We cannot stand in defense of Rasulullah and the immaculate progeny. Then guess what? We have failed. And the majalis that we've attended, they have failed. We shouldn't call ourselves as part of the alliance of Imam al-Hussein, the allies of Imam al-Hussein, the companions of Imam al-Hussein. We're just merely people that are standing there and watching. Imam al-Hussein is not looking for a big crowd, trust me. Imam al-Hussein is not looking for numbers. Imam al-Hussein is looking for quality. If Imam al-Hussein was looking for numbers, he would never have left the city of Medina. He would have performed Hajj and went back to Medina and he would have had truce with Yazid. Imam al-Hussein was looking for a few men that are going to change the world forever. And Imam al-Hussein changed the fate of Islam forever. Imam al-Hussein changed the fate of humanity forever with a few men. And tonight... At the very first lecture, I would like to touch upon an extremely important topic. A topic that needs the spirit of Imam al-Hussein. And needs the spirit of the companions of Imam al-Hussein. Those who are willing to give everything they possibly have for the sake of that ultimate purpose. I am here to address the following question. Are the majalis of Imam al-Hussein bringing about that change that our community needs? Is the member of Imam al-Hussein serving our community the way it should? 
when you attend a majlis, when you attend Ashura for 10 days and you leave, do you feel that you've now become closer to the Qur'an, closer to your religion, closer to Allah, closer to the message of Hussein? Is the minbar truly doing that for us? Whether it's here, elsewhere in the world. And I tell you sometimes, some of the majalis and some of the gatherings of Imam al-Hussein go directly against the teachings and the principles of Hussein. Yeah, it's a huge statement. But let me explain to you. Today, Many of the majalis and the gatherings around the world and especially in the West are based on a nationalistic approach, a cultural activity, a cultural festival. What do I mean? You know, it's very difficult for me to sit in my vehicle and end up in Najaf or Karbala or Basra every evening. And then the next day, be in LA or for example, New York or London or Sydney for work or for school. So what we've done is we've made Husseiniyat, we've made places, centers, organizations in the name of Imam al-Hussein, but to remind us of how we used to do things back home. Because obviously we can't go back home every day. So you find centers in the name of Imam al-Hussein, but you go there and they're just for Iraqis or you go there and they're just for the Lebanese or you go there and they're just for the Afghani community the Khoja community the Pakistani community the Indian community <coughs> and they do things exactly the way they're done back home it's a cultural activity and you wonder 10 years 20 years later when those people are attending those majalis and you hold them and you say listen You've been attending majalis for about 30 years now. Let me ask you very simple questions about Islam. Go ahead. Name the first 12 chapters from the Quran. Well, I know the first three, but then do I have to mention them in order? It's kind of difficult. Really? Tell me, the years in which every, every imam took the leadership position of imamah. Imam al-Rida. Which year did he take the leadership position of imamah? And which year did he end up giving it to Imam al-Jawad? How long? Very, very simple alphabetical questions about Islam. I'm not talking about detailed fiqhi issues. Do we know how to defend the Holy Qur'an? You attend majalis for 20 years and then you end up going to college or going to work and you speak with your employer or your, or your employee and they're asking you, listen, you know those verses in the Qur'an when it talks about killing non-Muslims, what are they about? You're thinking last night in the lecture, the speaker was talking about the horse of Imam Hussein. Was it brown or white? Oh, that's not going to help me answer this question. Or for example, I learned the details of the battle 
When Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas went to the Euphrates until he came back, I know how to say that backwards 50 times. I've memorized it. But guess what? When it comes to, for example, discussing issues revolving the Qur'an or chapter 9 from the Holy Qur'an, Surah Al-Tawbah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of the Muslim, non-Muslim relationships, I'm lost. I'm clueless. They'll bring hadiths from Muslim books, right? And they'll put it in front of us and they'll say, can you explain this hadith for me? How is it that your prophet of Islam married a nine-year-old, for example? And you say, well, that's not true. Then they'll hit you up with a hadith right there. Not one, not two, ten hadiths, twenty hadiths. And you're thinking, well, those things were never really discussed in the lectures I attend. If we attend the majalis of Imam al Hussein and we do not become ambassadors of change within our community, where we live, and how we live, then the majalis and our attendance in those majalis have failed. So when you see all those cultural places, and it's funny, you know, because people in the street, they're driving, following all the laws, all the laws, or the regulations, they park, you know, they, they, they put on their seatbelt, they do everything right, but as soon as they get into that place where they've made, just like back home, they've decorated it like back home, the food they give us, they even drive, they don't even drive now, they don't even drive correctly now. They'll double park, they'll, they'll block driveways, all sorts of things. And as soon as they leave, once again, no, they're back to their normal lives. Let's not be selfish with Imam al-Hussein. Imam al-Hussein is not about a cultural, ritualistic activity. Imam al-Hussein is much bigger than that. And the message and the role of Imam al-Hussein within our community must be much bigger than that. Many of the times, you find people discriminating against one another in the majalis of Imam al-Hussein. Once again, that directly contradicts the teachings of Imam Abu Abdullah. Look at the camp of Imam al-Hussein. Multicultural. Multi-religious. Today, we must welcome every human being who is interested in Islam, in the Holy Quran, in the Ahl al-Bayt, in Islam, in humanity, in freedom, in justice, in liberty, in equality. Whether they are Shia, Sunni, Sufi, Christians, Jews, atheists, I don't care what they are. If they are interested in Imam al-Hussein and his message and his legacy, we must welcome them in open arms. This is why I would like to discuss this very crucial topic in the following three steps. Number one, the content of our majalis. 
Number two, the disconnect of our community with the religious institution. And number three, misinterpreting the role of scholars within our community. I find those three elements, brothers and sisters, extremely crucial for the survival of the majalis of Imam al-Hussein, especially in the West. And I find those elements extremely crucial for the survival of Shiism in the West. If we don't wake up, and if we don't change our ways, the whole madhab is in jeopardy. And Imam al-Hussein, like I said, brothers and sisters, is that master of change. He is the last hope of change. <coughs> Go and study the situation of the Muslims at that period. The period of the uprising of Imam al-Hussein and prior to that. You know, it wasn't just an overnight decision where Imam al-Hussein says, you know what, I'm going to go and just become a martyr. No. It was a 20-year process that led Imam al-Hussein to Karbala. Go and read history. Some of the khulafa, the so-called caliphs of the Muslims, they would pray Salatul Jumu'ah, the Friday prayers, not on Friday, but on Wednesday. This is not a joke. They would pray Salatul Jumu'ah on Wednesday. Well, that's not a big deal. Some of the so-called Khalifa, they would stand, they would sit and deliver the khutbah. The Friday prayers. You know, you have to be standing, obviously. So they would sit and deliver the khutbah. Why? Because of obesity. Extreme obesity. He was so infatuated with food that he could not stand and deliver the khutbah. <coughs> and it's funny. Because some of those Individuals and some of those characters, you literally cannot mention their name. They're so sanctified and they're so holy to some people. And you look at them and you say, look, you're following those people. For example, amongst them is Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, who took the Khilafah away from Imam al-Hasan and became the fifth or sixth Khalifa. Right? And you would think that those people who follow Muawiyah, they actually know what his biography was like. What kind of person he was. Muawiyah out of obesity sat on the member and delivered Salat al-Jum'ah. Not only that, he prayed it on Wednesday. More importantly, you know those people, they have a long beard, you know, up to their belly buttons. And you're thinking... Do you know what Muawiyah's beard looked like? He used to plug his beard every single day. They have these short dresses, you know, the mini skirts. And you say, why are you wearing that? He says, well, this is the sunnah of Rasulullah. Rasulullah never told you to wear a mini skirt. He says, don't let your dress drag 
Because obviously back then, you know, there weren't any paved streets, so people's dresses were getting dirty. So Rasulullah was speaking of cleanliness. But he wasn't, you know, asking us to walk around with miniskirts. History says, and I kid you not, go look at the biography of Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. Once he would enter the mosque as the Khalifa of the Muslims, seven people would have to carry his dress. Yeah. When he would enter, his dress was so long that seven people would have to walk behind him carrying his dress. Is this a Khalifa of the Muslims? And, you know, after Muawiyah, the situation got so much worse. But the only hope for survival of Islam was Imam al-Hussein. Today, sometimes we feel there is no hope. But the majalis of Imam al-Hussein are meant to rejuvenate the community of Imam al-Hussein. And that is why I have chosen to speak of those very important factors to bring about change and to ensure the salvation of the madhab of the Ahlul Bayt, especially in the West. Let me list them to you one more time. One is Sallu ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad. الثاني على حب الحسن والحسين First is the content of our majalis the content of our islamic centers Number 2 is the disconnect of the community and the religious institution And number 3 is misinterpreting the role of scholars Let's discuss them one by one. Brothers, we have a huge dilemma. And we should not ignore this topic. Many of us, when we attend the majalis, whether it's Muharram, whether it's Ramadan, whether it's Arba'een, whether it's a weekly program, we don't feel connected with the content. The content that is being delivered. You know, sometimes some people, they have actually memorized the majalis every single night. They know if they go, the speaker who they've been listening to for 20 years, first night, this is his topic. For the past 20 years, it doesn't change. Second night, this is his topic. Third night, that's it. Seventh, eighth, they'll, they'll have it memorized. They'll say it before he says it. And obviously... This new generation is not going to tolerate that. And that's the truth. That is why we need to change the content of the majalis to the following three. Number one, the content of every majlis should revolve, should revolve around the Qur'an. The holy book of Allah. The majalis should create a relationship between us and the Holy Qur'an. 
You know, Amir al-Mu'mineen describes the believers. And he describes their relationship with the Holy Qur'an to a point that he says, every evening, instead of those mu'mineen sleeping and enjoying the comfort of their beds, what happens? They stand. They recite sections from the Quran. Look at this statement by Amir al-Mu'min. He says, you want to know the relationship of a mu'min with the Qur'an? At night, they stand firmly reciting the Holy Qur'an in a beautiful melody. And if they reach an ayah that speaks of the wrath of Allah, they give fear to themselves from it. So it's as if they have seen the hellfire, not with their eyes, but with their souls. And when they reach an ayah that speaks of the bounties and the mercy of Allah, it's as if they witness it. It's as if they've seen paradise with their souls. <coughs> the majalis are meant to contain the teachings of the Qur'an, brothers and sisters, not fictitious tales and stories and dreams and entertainment. Number two, the majalis should speak of logic. Don't sit here telling me illogical things that are not based on reason or rationale. Islam is a religion based on reason and intellect. Islam began with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. Don't sit there talking about dreams and fictitious tales and stories for two hours. You know, some of the lectures are more like a Bollywood movie than a lecture. An intellectual debate. Third, do not exaggerate. Do not exaggerate in anything. You know, some of the speakers or orators or reciters of Masa'ib, they exaggerate everything so much. And you ask them, brother, you know, I missed this. Which book is this from? Well, I just made it up. What do you mean you made it up? This is the tragedy of Abu Abdullah al Hussein. This is a tragedy that the Malaika cried upon. You're making it up? Why? So that people can cry more? Isn't one minute of the tragedy of Imam al Hussein enough for us to weep for centuries? So we end up making stories? And guess what? We make up some stories as a part of the exaggeration and people will then start doubting everything that we say. 
you know, they say there was an orator, and he, he used to really exaggerate the event of Ashura. So he would say, for example, Qasim, he went to the battlefield and he killed about 50,000. And then Abbas came and he killed about 100,000. And then Ali Akbar came and he killed about half a million. So they came to him, they said, listen, you know, there weren't as many numbers in all of Iraq at that period, you know. If all of Iraq gathered at that period and Sham together, they weren't about, you know, the numbers you're saying only Qasim killed. So this is, you know, this doesn't look good. So, you know, tone it down. He says, okay. Goes and sits on the minbar and he, you know, starts with Qasim and then he says, Qasim killed, you know, 50,000. Somebody sitting there, he coughs and he realizes the number was big. So he says, okay, 20,000. He coughs again, he says, well, 10,000. Then they move to Ali al-Akbar and he reaches Abbas, says, and Abbas. He killed half a million. This guy starts coughing. So he looks at him and he says, fine, 200,000. Until he reaches 10,000, he says, listen, you can cough all year long. I'm not going to go under 10,000 for Abbas. And sometimes those things are so exaggerated. And we feel it's part of our respect towards Amir al-Mu'mineen, our respect towards Imam al-Hussein, our respect towards the martyrs of Ashura. Indeed, it is the greatest form of disrespect to them. Imam al-Hussein was the one that stood in front of all the enemies. And he says, I am the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib. If all the Arabs stand in front of me, and they draw their swords to fight me, I will, run, I will not run away from them. That is bravery. That is Hussein ibn Ali. Or else if Hussein wanted to employ miracles on the day of Ashura, he wouldn't have been killed. And he wouldn't have been slain thirsty. The miracle of Imam al-Hussein is today. When millions upon millions of people after his martyrdom walk to his grave and they pay their respect to him. That is the miracle of Hussein. So we must make our content a content that is relevant. A content that speaks of the problems of people today, addresses their issues and concerns on daily basis. Not a content that belongs to 200 years ago. Number two, I would like to address the issue of the disconnect between our community and the religious institution. Sayyid, what do you mean the religious institution? Do you mean the Husayniya? Do you mean the Masjid? Do you mean the Hawza? Do you mean the Marjaiya? Do you mean the Wakil of the Marjaiya? You... Yes, I do. All the above. Every single one. There is a disconnect. People in the community today, whether we like it or we don't, whenever they sit in circles, especially religious people, they criticize the religious institution. And we are giving deaf ears to their criticism. <laughs> what do they know? They're just chasing their businesses and going about their lives, what, are, what do they know? 
especially the youth. What do the youth, what do the youth know about the religious institution? We don't need to listen to them. And you know, the religious institution is subject to a lot of criticism. And that's just been the case. Look at religious people in the Christian religion. When they sit, they, that's, that's what it is. It's Chinese whispers of criticizing their church. Catholics, same thing. Jews, the same thing. Buddhists, the same thing. Hindus, the same thing. But I'm not concerned about them. I am concerned about my own community. Every time we sit, especially religious people, Saharat in the month of Ramadan, month of Muharram over Argila, the very first topic, the easiest topic, you know, the, the sweetest topic of the Majalis, Shukhaya. And the criticism of the religious institution begins. It should not fall on deaf ears. One of the most important and critical issues is the fact that people are now used to d democracies. You know, being part of a democracy, being part of a system. Today, you can vote on literally everything in your society, whether it's the city council, or your mayor, or your member of Congress, or your president, and everyone else that represents you. However, the religious institution is stuck in a monarchy. We're not part of the system. While every believer, every mu'min and mu'mina must be part of that religious institution, must be able to voice their opinion and their opinion must be respected and it must be heard. That are, this is the teaching of Amir al-Mu'mineen. This is what Imam al-Hussein was trying to achieve. Don't let anyone else fool you otherwise. People will stand in front of Amir al-Mu'mineen and khutbat al-Jumu'ah and they would criticize him. And Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen would listen to them even though he was ma'soom. And their criticism was never falling on deaf ears. You know, Amir al-Mu'mineen, when he went to Kufa and he became the Khalifa, he built his bedroom right next to the entrance of his house. And he put his house right into the downtown. So some people, they came to him, they said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, you know, you're good at everything except engineering, man. Who puts their bedroom right next to the entrance? He says, I do. Why, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen? He says, because people will knock at the door of the Khalifa. And if my bedroom is all the way to the end of the house, it takes time for me to come and open the door and listen to what they have to say. So I've kept my bedroom right next to the entrance. So as soon as they knock at my door, I am available to them. That is the religious institution. And that is the role of the ulama today. To listen to the community. Number two. Many of the community members, especially in the West, 
have a great complaint. What is their complaint? Is it a valid complaint? Well, let's hear it. The religious institution does not understand our concerns. It doesn't understand our needs. It's not giving us solutions. Instead, the religious institution is giving us Risal al-Amaliyah. You know the book of laws. There is about 12,000, 14,000, 16,000 laws in that book. It's a very thick book. I'm sure you've all come across it. And then you want to learn about Salah, for example. So there are about 1,200 laws concerning Salah. Well, guess what? It's going to take three years for you to read them. And let's say you read them. Do people understand them? You know, I've seen people, they say, Sayyid, I, I understand Arabic. I read magazines, I read books. But when it comes to the risala of the amaliyah of any marja, I read it and I don't understand it. It's confusing to me. I don't understand what ihtiyat means, what precaution means. I don't understand what tark al-awla means. <coughs> I don't understand all those terminologies and the wording of those laws and they're just too many. And they confuse me. We need a much simpler book of laws. And that indeed is an extremely valid concern. Number three, the believers, the men and women, living in the West, they have a different lifestyle. They have different concerns. They have different needs. And the religion of Islam, especially the fiqh of Ahl al-Bayt, is a flexible fiqh. As a fiqh that's meant to make our lives easier. It's meant to make our lives beautiful. It's meant to draw us towards the religion of Islam. It's not meant to make the religion so complicated that you're saying, listen, I don't want to have anything to do with the religion. I can't follow those laws. They're just too difficult. And number three, the third point that I'd like to discuss is misinterpreting the role of scholars. Listen to me. I want to have an extremely honest discussion with you now. We sometimes misinterpret the role of scholars. What do I mean? We believe scholars are meant to be imports. Imports from Iraq, Najaf, Qom. People who are old, gray hair, white beards, that are holy that are spiritual. That is not the role of scholars. Yes, we have many different kinds of scholars. Some of those roles, some of those tasks must be played by those who have 50, 60, 70 years of experience at the Hawza. That is the role of the maraja, the teachers, the researchers, those who head the research. But today in the West, we need scholars amongst you, from your community, that understand your concerns. And don't tell me, well, Sayyidna, 
I can't become a scholar. I mean, it's just not the lifestyle I want. Why not? You know, let me, let me give you this beautiful story, and I think within the story, a lot of questions will be answered. One day, a young man was caught stealing in a village in Iraq. So they gathered, and they said, you know what? We're going to cut his hand. He just goes around stealing, and he's a thug, and he's a gangster, and look at him. We're going to teach him a lesson. So he says to them, listen, instead of amputating my hand, let me leave the city. I'm never going to come back. And, you know, the elders of the community, they came and they spoke and they decided they're going to let him go. He walked out of the city. Didn't know where to go. It was nighttime. It was dark. He was lonely by himself. And he says, Oh, Allah, I hear you're the most compassionate Lord. You're forgiving. And you're kind. And you're gracious. And you forgive all of our sins. Would you forgive my sins? Is it, are you that merciful? Would you help me? Would you guide me? God, I'm testing you today. I know I'm a sinner, but I'm testing you. This very second. Are you that God that I've heard of? And then he just goes to sleep. The next day comes a caravan and they wake him up. Hey, what are you doing sleeping in the middle of the desert? It's dangerous. Where are you guys going? He's, they say, we're going to Najaf. You can tag along. Tags along, ends up in Najaf. Doesn't have a place to stay. So he goes to a hausa, a dormitory, and he sleeps there one night, two nights, three nights, and he gets introduced to a scholar, and the scholar tells him, you know, I don't care what your background is, but you should start your hausa studies. Study the religion of Islam. Doesn't know this guy's a thief. And he, right there and then, realizes that this was the window of opportunity from Allah to him. This was his calling. At that moment, he was able to forgive himself. He was able to forget his past. He didn't sit there and say, well, you know, I'm a thief. What am I going to do at the Hauza? No. He realized that Allah is that merciful, compassionate Lord. He studied and studied for 20 years. And he became one of the closest scholars to the grand merge of his time. People that debate the grand marja' of his time. One day as he was sitting next to the grand marja' and they were debating over a fiqhi law, people, a delegation from his village came to visit this marja'. The same people that wanted to amputate his hand. Subhanallah. Look at how Allah works in mysterious ways. And they came and they sat next to the marja'. Obviously they don't know this guy. They don't recognize him. They said, he said to them, they said to the marja, Sayyidna, we would like for you to send us your finest of students. So they become your ambassadors and they teach us. So the Sayyid said, which village are you from? They said the name of the village. 
He said, this man is from this village and he is amongst the finest of my students. Please shake his hand and take him with you. He himself says this story. He says, every one of them, every single one of those men who wanted to amputate my hand 20, 25 years back, kissed my hand, respected me, and took me as the alim in their village. Don't tell me I can't become a scholar. There is no monopoly on knowledge. There is no reason for you to feel that your background should stop you from becoming a scholar. Every time Allah speaks of prophets in the Quran, He says the prophets were amongst them, from them, spoke their language, was like a brother, was like a cousin. Yeah, your brother understands you. Your cousin understands you. They are one of you. The only way for us to see that great change within our community is once people go and they study. They truly study. You know, some people, they go to a long ziyara trip, like three months, and they come back with a turban. Habibi, what happened? What's this? Wallah, I'm a sheikh. What happened? Did you receive revelations there? or You know? No. I truly mean, go and study. Go and see the scholars. Go and see the seminary. And stay there. And come back as a learned scholar. Fi sabilillah. And illuminate the path of your community and guide them. And rejuvenate them. And bring about change to them. If we do this, then there is hope for the survival of Shi'azm. And if we don't, brothers and sisters, then I am afraid we are putting the future of Islam and Shi'azm in jeopardy. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.